thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, today we're here in honor of World Cancer Day. So we're here with our editor-in-chief, Dr. Thomas Abrams, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, as well as two of our editorial board members, Dr. Olka Vaishampayan, a professor of medicine at the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center, and Beth Sandy, an outpatient thoracic oncology nurse practitioner at the University of Pennsylvania Abramson Cancer Center. So today they're going to be giving us an update on the latest research in the field in honor of World Cancer Day. Thank you for having me, Kira. This is uh, really wonderful to be representing uh, ODA on World Cancer Day. Uh, as you alluded to, I'm a GI medical oncologist. Uh, my specialty within that is hepatobiliary uh, cancers, but I, but I treat all manner of GI uh, cancers. And, you know, we recently had our big meeting, uh, GI ASCO, uh, uh, on uh, a couple of weeks ago. And there were actually some really pra major practice changing uh, uh, studies presented uh, in hepatobiliary cancer. And these are cancers where, you know, traditionally patients don't do very well. Uh, they're diagnosed late, uh, patients die, you know, usually within a year of diagnosis, unless they're, unless they're diagnosed very early. So having these new, uh, treatment options are, you know, really, really terrific for patients, uh, in cholangiocarcinoma and gallbladder cancer, there was a study called Topaz one, which, uh, pitted, uh, the previous standard of care, which was gemcitabine and cisplatin for newly diagnosed advanced cancer patients. Uh, versus uh, that combination with dervalumab, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And uh, in case, you know, most people don't really know that immune checkpoint inhibitors haven't really become very valuable in most GI cancers. We haven't really figured out ways to use them in most colon cancers and most pancreatic cancers. And so, uh, you know, despite the, the, the value in other cancers, there really hasn't been as much uh, immune therapy in GI cancers. So this was a really important study, and it found that the, uh, the, the addition of dervalumab to that chemotherapy backbone improved outcomes, improved overall survival, it, it improved response rates, uh, and progression-free survival. So this was a big win for immune checkpoint inhibitors in, uh, in, in hepatobiliary cancers. Uh, we had another study um, that looked at um, early stage uh, cholangiocarcinomas uh, that were removed surgically. Um, previously, there was a study looking at uh, a drug called capecitabine adjuvantly, which didn't meet, it, meet its primary endpoint, but there was a, a thought that it may improve outcomes. This was a study in Asia looking at a drug called S1, which is, uh, which is another fluoroperimidine, and that clearly was a big win. So uh, another big improvement in, in treatment for uh, uh, resected uh, 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 biliary cancers. Um, in hepatocellular carcinoma, um, we also found uh, a, new, uh, a new purely immune checkpoint inhibitor study uh, looking at um, uh, uh, two immune checkpoint inhibitors together, durvalumab and tremulimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. So one dose of tremulimumab with durvalumab showed uh, at least as good uh, uh, um, treatment as any treatment that we've had so far. So this, this is just purely immune checkpoint inhibitors in, in, in uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, no other drugs involved, so no TKIs, no VEGF inhibitors. 
And that showed a, a very significant improvement in overall survival. So really two, three major studies uh, that are potentially practice changing that were presented just two weeks ago. So I, I think we're really moving in the right direction in these kinds of cancers that have you know, generally very poor prognoses. Thank you so much for that really great overview. Um, so Dr. Vaishampayan, what has some of the latest research included in the field of genitourinary cancer? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I know World Cancer Day, we're trying to sort of summarize what has happened in the field over overall, as well as in specific cancers. So few principles I will state right off the bat is that our cancer therapies are getting much more targeted. So we're able to select out patients better and better to benefit from specific therapies, which of course improves the efficiency of treatments overall. The other thing is they are getting much more widely applicable. For instance, I mean, bladder cancer was a disease of the elderly. You could barely ever give them cisplatin-based chemotherapy given their kidney function and uh, all of their other comorbid conditions. But now with uh, other treatments like immunotherapy, like the antibody drug conjugates, I think treatment systemic therapy has become accessible and applicable to a much wider population. And I would say that's true in prostate, that's true in kidney cancer also. So starting with kidney cancer, I think the big uh, paradigm shift has been to use immune therapy-based combinations up front. And those do give, even there were reported five-year results now with a sizable about 20 to 30% of patients actually having long-term remissions with starting off with metastatic disease. The other big uh, area of controversy right now is whether to do nephrectomy and metastatic disease. Because patients who present with the kidney mass and metastases at the same time do much worse than the patients who had presented early on with just a kidney mass, had the kidney removed, and then relapsed to develop systemic disease. So I think uh, right now there is a national trial, SWOG 1931, or the PROBE trial, that is addressing that question of whether removing the kidney still holds a role in the setting of such effective immunotherapy combinations for metastatic kidney cancer or for synchronous metastatic kidney cancer. Uh, in bladder cancer, as I said, more and more, a lot of the immunotherapy uh, mechanisms are moving earlier and earlier, even in the non-muscle invasive phase, which allows us to sort of delay the appearance of metastases, which is the ultimate goal in the first place. In prostate cancer, uh, you know, there are already a number of uh, therapeutic options for metastatic disease, but it does remain an incurable and morbid condition. So uh, I think the recent uh, report of the PSMA lutetium, uh, which showed efficacy and survival benefit in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer is important to keep in mind. This uh, modality has not yet received FDA approval, but that could be a potential therapeutic option for people in the future. The other trend has been more and more that a lot of our effective treatments like the oral hormonal agents and chemotherapy with docetaxel 
are moving in the earlier setting. So in the hormone sensitive stage in metastatic disease, now you can use those modalities and uh, get better survival outcomes by treating people earlier or by intensifying therapy upfront. So think about that as you're looking at the long-term for your metastatic prostate cancer patient. Of course, you have to factor in their life expectancy, their comorbid conditions, et cetera, when you're considering intensification of therapy. The immunotherapy is gradually making a comeback in metastatic prostate cancer in very, very select patient populations. University of Michigan has reported a CDK12 mutation that uh, may make uh, prostate cancer very sensitive to uh, uh, immunotherapy. So there are clinical trials ongoing in that field. So overview-wise, there is a lot of exciting advances going on. There is more and more genomic profiling and testing, even liquid biopsy, the trend towards getting liquid biopsies and being able to select out therapies. I think that is where the future is as we're looking. And it does look particularly bright, uh, although it can't be here soon enough. And I will end on a note that all these advances that we've made have been because of the kindness and generosity of patients who have participated in clinical trials that help move the field forward. So tremendous thanks to all of those patients and their family members, of course, who have made this sacrifice. And hopefully that will keep on going to move the field. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for explaining all these advances. Um, so to speak about lung cancer, Beth, what are some of the latest advances in lung cancer included, as well as some of the future directions? Thank you for inviting me. I, my name is Beth Sandy. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania. I've been a nurse practitioner there for 20 years, um, treating lung cancer. So I've seen a lot that's happened. And I got to tell you, this is a really, really exciting time to be in lung cancer. So I'm going to talk about four different things, um, uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy. But I'm going to start off by just talking about some statistics. So I can tell you that this is the very first year, 2022, um, that the lung cancer deaths have dropped just below the deaths from colon, breast, and prostate combined. So every year that I speak about lung cancer, it's always lung cancer is the number one cancer killer, which is correct. It still is by far the number one um, cancer killer in the United States. Um, and it was always more than breast, colon, and prostate combined, which are the top three um, however, this is the very first year that that number slipped just underneath of them. And that's exciting for us. And really, that is largely because of targeted therapies and immunotherapies that are helping patients with lung cancer live longer. Um, you know, when I first started this 20 years ago, the average survival with um, treatment was nine months for metastatic lung cancer. Um, now we're quoting numbers around two years plus because of targeted therapy and immunotherapies. So that's just from a statistical standpoint, it's really exciting to see our patients living longer, um, you know, even to five years sometimes, which was really unheard of in the beginning when I started doing this. Um, I'll start with chemotherapy because chemotherapy, a little bit old hat now in lung cancer, obviously platinum-based chemotherapy is the backbone treatment for both small cell and non-small cell lung cancer, still that way, though immunotherapy is now in the first line setting. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, a lot of times we're combining immunotherapy with um, either carbo or cisplatin in the first line and a third drug, depending on the histologic subtypes. And that hasn't really changed over the past 
three to five years. We're still doing that in the first line setting. The one chemotherapy drug that is new that I'll call out attention to is lurbinectadin. So lurbinectadin is a drug that was recently over the past two years approved for small cell lung cancer. Remember in lung cancer, we have non-small cell, which makes up um, about 85% of the cases, small cells around 15%, but it's very, very aggressive. Um, and we haven't done well with treating that in the past. Um, we are using chemo and immunotherapy, but there's a new chemotherapy, lurbinectadin, that's approved in the second line setting now, um, where we've had very little um, you know, approvals and, and really responses, to be honest. So that's exciting. Pretty good response rates are fairly well tolerated. So I think that's really the only new thing in chemotherapy I would talk about. Um, so let's talk about immunotherapy. So, you know, you have to think um, probably the biggest space that immunotherapy's had its breakthrough in is lung cancer. It's been very exciting. Maybe melanoma would fight me on that. I don't know. But um, lung cancer, you know, we are now using checkpoint inhibitors in the frontline setting really for everyone, unless there is a um, contraindication such as organ transplant or severe autoimmune disease. Outside of that, um, really, everyone's getting a checkpoint inhibitor, regardless of your PDL1 expression. Now, we do test for PDL1 expression, and if they're higher than 50%, you can actually salvage chemotherapy and wait till the second line setting and use just single agent checkpoint inhibitor therapy in the front line, which um, really is just as good, if not better, than platinum based chemo and certainly um, is better tolerated. So it's really exciting when we can do that. Um, some of the drugs even have approval for 1% or higher, though I think most of us in the field are still going to add chemotherapy if you're under 50% because you don't get as robust of a response rate. Um, so it just depends. And it's not wrong even in the 50% expression of pd one or higher to use chemotherapy. It's not wrong. Um, it's just often not necessary. So it depends really on the patient and what their feelings are. And um, if you're willing to just use that single agent, but it's really been a breakthrough. It's wonderful. Um, and then immunotherapy is also in the first line setting now for small cell lung cancer. So, um, you know, that really hasn't changed. That's been about two or three years as well. Um, so really uh, using immunotherapy in this setting has changed our practice in the past three to five years, using it as a single agent, um, reducing toxicity in the frontline setting, salvaging chemotherapy to later if we can, or combining all three in the first line setting. Um, you know, with using these drugs, um, you know, typically we can see median um, progression-free survivals of a year or more. Um, I have a patient I saw this week in clinic who's on their five-year anniversary of single-agent first-line checkpoint inhibitor. She had metastatic disease, including brain mats at diagnosis, and has been on a single-agent immune therapy checkpoint inhibitor for five years. Never saw chemotherapy in her life yet. So these are not, and these are not super uncommon. I mean, they're not the norm, but they're not rare. They're not rare, I wouldn't say. So really exciting. And then I'll finish with targeted therapies. So targeted therapies are going to be when um, we have non-small cell lung cancer. So this is particular to non-small cell and even more particular to most patients with adenocarcinoma who um, makes up the majority of non-small cell. We do uh, a tissue biopsy and we would run molecular testing on that, a next generation sequencing panel generally. Um, you could also use the liquid biopsy that Dr. V had talked about, but um, you know, sending off a liquid biopsy also detects these mutations. And there's several now. There are 
think it's at nine now. So there's EGFR, KRAS, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, MET, RET, NTREC, PDL1's the ninth. I don't really consider that. So it's eight targeted. Um, And so there is an approved therapy for all of those I just mentioned, which is really exciting. Um, Some of them are second line, like um, KRAS would be after failure of chemotherapy. BRAF, sometimes it can be first or second line, but the rest of them generally will use first line targeted therapies, um, which have been shown better to have better response rates and even some like EGFR, better overall survival by using just the targeted therapy first line. Um, So it's really important that we're making sure that we are testing patients for these mutations and expression levels and that we are targeting our therapy if they have one of these. Um, And I'll just end with that. Now this is even moving into the frontline settings. So, or into the early stage settings, sorry. So um, EGFR inhibitors are now approved post-operatively for EGFR mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer. That's new in the past year. So um, hopefully improving our cure rates would be exciting. And immunotherapy has now... um, moved into the early stage post-operative setting as well for stage two and three non-small cell lung cancer with a positive PDL one score of anything over 1%. We can give a year of immunotherapy post-surgery, post four cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy, and then after that. Um, so lots changing um, from kind of all targeted immunotherapy, even chemotherapy, um, but certainly improving survival. So really exciting time for our patients with lung cancer. You know, I think these were terrific uh, summaries of some of the advances. And I think that's the themes are we, we are learning more about targets, you know, in different diseases. There are, you know, we've we've made more advances than in others. But I think the, the, the point is that we are we are figuring out the molecular basis for cancer and, you know, slowly but surely more treatments are becoming available that are targeted to specific genomic abnormalities that are driving the cancers. Uh, it's not simple. And, you know, we, we know that it's not just genomics, there's metabolomics, there's, 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 you know, immunogenics, there's a lot of different kinds of, of, of inputs that, that, that um, dictate how cancers respond to treatments. But, but as the basic science continues, we're, we are going to, the dominoes will continue to fall and outcomes will continue to get better. We're obviously looking for cures, um, cures are hard to come by in advanced diseases, uh, in advanced cancers, but we see them from time to time. And I think that gives us hope that we can, we can improve these outcomes and, and actually get patients to have, uh, a disease freedom for years and years and be, you know, tant- which is tantamount to cure. Uh, so, so that's the hope. And, um, and I think, you know, it's becoming more of a reality. Uh, it's, 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 it feels closer than it ever has. And I, I, you know, I open the floor to, to, to my colleagues and, uh, and share their thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I'm full of exciting clinical trials at Penn. Um, looking at new targets, targets I've never heard of. Um, I have to have the study nurse explain it to me. Um, multiple different immune checkpoints that I've never heard of. And we're just combining these drugs together. And sometimes the toxicity is bad, but we learn to deal with it or, um, manage it in some way, but, um, so many 
that's our future um, really in lung cancer is combining a new checkpoint inhibitors for the immune system and then <coughs> combining those with either old checkpoints or other drugs. And then on the other side of it is learning about new targets. I mean, we're up to eight. Um, you know, can we find more? I mean, maybe HER2 is around the corner for us in lung cancer, like it is in breast cancer. So we're looking at, we're really looking at that. And I think that's going to be something coming up too. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, her two mutations in red and met, they only make up one to 2%. But if you start adding up all those one to 2%, you know, that's ends up being five to 10%. And then you say, well, that's a large chunk of patients, you know, where you're diagnosing, you know, I, I don't know, like, I think it's like 300,000 of these a year or something. So, you know, that becomes a large number to really impact those lives. So um, research is really, um, is really strong in that area and looking at immune immune therapy and targeted therapy for lung anyway. I mean, I think you bring up a really good point, which is that at some level, this is the, we're not, I think we're going to have to start deviating from disease, you know, sort of organ specific disease um, uh, thinking because a HER2 amplified lung cancer is clearly not the same thing as a, as a non-HER2, and, and maybe it's more akin to other HER2 amplified cancers in general. So we, I think we're going to be getting away from this, this sort of organ-focused and sort of move into uh, genome-focused, and maybe that's going to be a new paradigm. But I mean, this is obviously longer term, but I, I do see that as, um, a, uh, as a thing that we should be that we should be thinking about at least because clearly, you know, within colon cancer and within pancreatic cancer, you see great responders who do it tremendously well. And then you see really poor responders who, who are, you know, have horrible outcomes. And sometimes we can't really, we don't really know why that is, but obviously there's, there's, there's a reason for it. And we, and, and by, you know, searching and, and, and trying to continue the research, I think we will find that. And, and I think we will find that there are parallels between uh, diseases we, we didn't really think there were. And, 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 uh, and so I think the approach is going to change. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with the, the comments before. I also think that the more we use this kind of personalized or individualized therapy, we are getting more rapid access to our patients for the new drugs, because now you can do just a single arm, small 50 patient study with the benefit, which shown proven benefit because you're selecting the patient so carefully for the patients who are most likely to benefit compared to the hundreds and thousands of patients we put on clinical trials before got 20% responses showing a difference from 20% to 40%, for instance, was not as big an advance. So I think, uh, you know, I would say that clinical trials to me for my patients represent the most cutting edge science there is. So I would advise most of the patients at least to consider that when they're considering therapy choices and not wait until they failed everything else to consider clinical trials. That is not the role of clinical trials anymore. It has changed where it's an ongoing process throughout the disease process. 
So uh, I would say the three R's that I claim for our phase one team, for sure, are rapid access to the right agent to the right patient. So that's, uh, that's really the goal going forward is to develop more and more ways and technology to get there in terms of personalized medicine. Well, thank you all so much for sharing this research and it'll be really exciting to see how the the field continues to evolve in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Great. Thank you to everybody for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com. 